So we continue with our series, The Revelation of Jesus Christ, Read, Listen, Take to Heart, and we come today to Revelation chapter 14, and if you've got your Bible with you, won't you open with me uh, to that chapter? You'll remember that we had a look at the first part of these verses, verses 1 to 5, last time we were together, and taking the chapter as a whole, in Revelation chapter 14, John sees two distinct groups of people with two ways of life and two eternal destinies. On the one hand, there are those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes and who have his name and the name of his Father on their foreheads. And then there are those who worship the beast and his image and have the mark of his name on their foreheads or their hands. The one group is described as those who are blessed and the other are those for whom there is eternal torment and no rest either day or night. And it's important that we look at both of these groups because the crucial question for us today is this, to which group of people do I belong? Because judgment is certainly coming. That is the message of this passage, that there will be a day of judgment on the earth where this fundamental division will be evident to all. So let's have a look. Revelation chapter 14 from verse 6. John writes, Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image, or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. 
Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. This is God's word. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you who inspired these words, Lord Jesus, you who gave this revelation to John, we ask that you would please inspire our hearts and our minds to understand and our eyes to see what you might be saying to us through your word, because we ask it in your name. Amen. So Revelation 14 can really be divided into two sections. In the first section, verses 6 to 13, we read about these three angels who give advance warning of God's judgment. And then in the second section, verses 14 to 20, we read about the judgment itself in terms of a grain harvest and then a grape harvest. We're going to spend most of our time this morning looking at the three angels and their message Because that's where we live. We live in the period before God's judgment. And so the angelic messages are vitally important because they address us right now where we live. So the angelic messengers. And firstly, we have the angel and the eternal gospel in verses 6 and 7. I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Now, I think it's important to realize that these verses describe our response to the gospel and not the content of the gospel itself. Uh, Some people have taken verse 7 to be the content of the gospel. In other words, all you have to do in order to be saved is to fear God and give him glory and worship him, a kind of a universalistic gospel, if you like. But no, that would go against everything else the New Testament has written. John, in fact, has already given us the content of the gospel on page one of the book, chapter one, verse six. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sin by his blood. The gospel is the good news. That's what gospel means, the good news that what we could not do for ourselves, God has done for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus lived the life I should have lived and died the death I deserve. And if I accept what he did for me on the cross, I receive his forgiveness and I stand before God dressed in Jesus' righteousness. That's the content of the gospel that the angel proclaims. And our response to that then is found in verse 7. Fear God. Treat him as holy. Give him glory. Worship him 
who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. And notice that this gospel is for everyone. The angel proclaims it to every nation, tribe, language, and people. As Paul says in Romans chapter 1, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what others may have done to you. This gospel is for everyone It's interesting that it's an angel who proclaims the eternal gospel. Uh, We tend to think that the eternal gospel is only proclaimed by human messengers. But this is a good reminder to us that God has other servants too. One thinks of the many testimonies coming out of the Muslim world where men and women are turning to Jesus because of dreams and visions or even the Lord Jesus himself appearing to them. We can certainly pray that God would work in this way. But note two important things. Number one, this angel declares the eternal gospel. He doesn't proclaim anything in addition to the gospel. I was speaking with a gentleman on Friday afternoon who believes that in 1823, an angel appeared to Joseph Smith and revealed to him the writings of ancient prophets on golden tablets, which he translated into the Book of Mormon. Perhaps you've met those of the Latter-day Saints. The Book of Mormon is another testament of Jesus. But Paul writes in Galatians chapter 1, and he reminds us, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be eternally condemned. In other words, messages from angelic beings do not trump the gospel. The gospel message trumps messages from angelic beings. Spiritual experiences do not explain scripture. Scripture explains spiritual experiences, and angels do not add anything to the eternal gospel. But number two, the fact that God has angelic messengers doesn't release us from our own responsibility to proclaim the eternal gospel. Remember back in chapter 12 that the Lamb's people are those who overcome the dragon by the word of their testimony, the gospel, the difference that it has made in our lives. And you and I have a God-given responsibility and privilege to proclaim the eternal gospel. And we can do it as simply as inviting a friend to come along to church on a Sunday night to the Alpha Course. So the angel and the eternal gospel... Secondly, we read about the angel and Babylon in verse 8. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Now, John devotes chapters 17 to 19 to the fall of Babylon, so I'll leave my comments until we get there. But just to say that Babylon is a symbol of the world in opposition to God. It's a symbol of God-rejecting, God-denying power. And the angel's message is that this world power will not last. It cannot last. It will be overthrown on the day of judgment. 
And so the challenge to us then is not to trust in Babylon, not to be sucked into the lies and the allurements of the world. In the words of John's first letter, not to love the world or anything in the world, but to realize that the world and its desires pass away, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. So the first angel announcing that the day of judgment has come, the second angel warning that on the day, on that day rather, Babylon will fall along with all who have trusted in her. But the third angel goes even further. He describes the eternal destiny of those who have worshipped the beast in verses 9 to 11. Now this is a disturbing passage of scripture. But it is God's word to us, and we can't simply cut it out of our Bibles because we find it unpleasant. There's too much for us to focus just in one sermon, and in fact, we're going to come back to some of these themes again later in the book. So let me just make a few comments that I, th- I hope will help us. In verse 9, we read, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, in other words, anyone who buys into this world power and system, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. This theme of God's wrath actually runs all the way through the Old and the New Testaments. It's a consistent theme. We tend to emphasize God's love. Some churches do so in even an embarrassing and cuddly way, cute. But we dare not ignore this part of God's character. In fact, you cannot fully understand the love of God unless you've come to terms with the wrath of God. I think the best person to help us with the tricky subject of God's wrath is J.I. Packer in his excellent book, Knowing God. He writes this, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. Even among humans, there is such a thing as righteous indignation, though it is perhaps very rarely found. But all God's indignation is righteous. A couple of weeks ago, uh, I was lying in bed and I decided to check the news on my phone before I went to sleep. Bad idea. The news should come with a warning. In fact, I think one of the news stories did, in fact, come with a warning at the beginning of the article. Let me give you a warning, too. If you're at all sensitive, you might want to stop listening at this point. I'll put up my hand, you can block your ears, and then I'll put it down and you can listen. Or if you're listening on the recording, just skip 20 seconds. I looked at just two news stories, one after the other, just two. The first was about sexual abuse taking part at a creche in Melbostrand. The owner's husband had been arriving at the creche during nap time and taking one of the boys or girls back to their home where he would abuse them. And the second was a story about a 16-year-old girl in the Eastern Cape who over the Easter weekend was raped and then had her eyes gouged out by her attacker, presumably so that she couldn't identify him in the future. 
Now, folk, if God can look at those two situations and just shrug his shoulders and say, it doesn't really matter, it's not serious, then we would not have a God of love. You'd have a God who, quite frankly, was a monster. We need a God who, in the words of John Stott, has a personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil, a settled refusal to compromise with it, and a resolve instead to condemn it and get rid of it. God condemns sin and will one day finally punish it and rid the world of it. We read in verse 10 that uh, whoever receives the beast's mark, whoever refuses to love God and instead loves the world, will be tormented with burning sulfur. The imagery comes to us from the book of Genesis and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a picture that we'll pick up again in chapters 19, 20, and 21, the fiery lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet and the dragon and those who follow them will be thrown. And probably the most disturbing thing about this is that we're told in verse 11 that the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast. Now that phrase, forever and ever, is used 12 times in the book of Revelation to speak about something that never ends. In chapter 1, for example, Jesus says, Behold, I am alive forever and ever. In chapter 4, God describes himself as the one who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever. In the final chapter, chapter 22, we read about God's people in heaven who will reign with him forever and ever. So if the term forever and ever describes the eternity of heaven, then it would seem that the term here must also describe the eternity of hell. What are we to make of this? This idea of eternal punishment is not particularly popular today, and it's been largely replaced by the idea of annihilationism, that unbelievers are destroyed by hell. I've heard some of my colleagues argue that human beings weren't made for eternity, and it's only believers in Jesus who are given eternal life. Unbelievers aren't given that gift. But you get to the great white throne judgment in chapter 20, and everyone who's ever lived is stood there. Clearly, every human being has an eternal part to them. Otherwise, unbelievers who don't have eternal life would cease to exist at death, while believers who do have eternal life would continue on and stand before God. But no, everyone stands before God which suggests that every human being is created for eternity, created to spend eternity with God. The next argument, then, is that the fire of hell is eternal, but that the punishment is not. Unbelievers are thrown into hell, but after they've paid the price, whether it's for a year or for a millennium, they are then destroyed. But that creates more problems than it solves. If people pay for their sins in hell... When, then why can't they be released into heaven once they've paid for them? And if their sins aren't paid for during the time that they're in hell, why would they be annihilated? And how can we pay for our sin in hell anyway, when the only way that we can be saved is through Christ's blood? There's a lot that we don't understand here, but I think four things may help us. Firstly, we need to remember, as Jonathan Edwards 
pointed out that if there is any evil in sin against God, it is infinite evil. So this past week, I read about a man called Azim, who's an Arab follower of Jesus in the Middle East and who was sharing the gospel recently with a taxi driver in his Muslim country. Uh, The driver believed that he would pay for his sins for a little while in hell and then he would surely go to heaven after that. After all, he hadn't done too many bad things. So Azim said to him, if I slapped you in the face, what what would you do? And the taxi driver said, well, I'd throw you out of my taxi. Azim continued, if I went up to a random guy on the street and I slapped him in the face, what would he do? And the driver said he'd probably call his friends and beat you up. Azim said, what if I went up to a policeman and slapped him in the face? The driver replied, you would be beaten up for sure and then you'd be thrown into jail. And finally, Azim said, what if I went to the king of this country and I slapped him in the face? The driver looked at Azim awkwardly for a while and said, Uh, you would die. And to this Azim said, so you see, the severity of sin's punishment is always a reflection of the position of the person who is sinned against. And I don't think we can understand the severity of our sin and rebellion against an infinite, glorious, and holy God. Secondly, I don't think we should think of hell as eternal punishment for finite sin, but rather as ongoing sin and thereby ongoing punishment. That those who are in hell remain unrepentant and rebellious. We're sometimes told by well-meaning preachers and teachers that love will win in the end, that God is a God of love and that love will eventually win the hearts of men and women who've lived in rebellion against him and are yet living in rebellion against him. But as one writer puts it, is hell really going to be made up of people who love God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength and love their neighbor as their selves? If these people somehow miraculously did get to heaven, they wouldn't be happy there, would they? Where God is the center and the Lamb is the center and they're overwhelmed by the brightness of the glory and the holiness of God, how would that be a delight to them? It wasn't a delight to them here. I think then that hell is self-chosen and that people continue to want to be in control of their own lives and want to push God out of their lives. And God has to give them what they want. Thirdly, I think it's important to remember that the person who spoke most about hell was our Lord Jesus himself, the kindest, gentlest, most loving person who ever lived. And Jesus didn't preach and teach about hell because he was grumpy and angry and vindictive. He warned about hell precisely because he was completely loving. As a parent, my warning my daughters about hot stovetops and electrical sockets wasn't because I hated them and wanted to ruin their lives. Quite the opposite, in fact. And finally, it's vitally important to remember in all our talk about hell that heaven is for bad people. 
David Turner writes, Heaven is for bad people. Heaven is for rebels. Heaven is for people who need to be rescued by God and are wanting to be rescued. God has flung the doors of heaven open through the eternal gospel that the first angel proclaims. As I say, there's much more that we could look at, and we'll come back to that again. But having looked at the three angels and their warning messages about the coming judgment, let's have a look at the day of judgment itself, which is described in two separate but related pictures. Firstly, there is the grain harvest of believers in verses 14 to 16. We read about one who is seated on a white cloud and is like a son of man, which can only refer to Jesus. Uh, Remember, we saw him pictured in this way back in chapter 1, in imagery that comes to us from the book of Daniel. And we shouldn't be too perturbed that an angel gives the command, take your sickle and reap. Uh, It's more an angelic announcement of the day of judgment rather than an angel telling Jesus what to do. And the day of judgment for believers is described very briefly. The harvest is ripe, the Lord Jesus swings his sickle, and the earth is harvested. Uh, This grain harvest was a picture that Jesus used a number of times in his teaching. If you think of Matthew chapter 13, for example, the story of how an enemy sows weeds among the grain of a farmer. And the farmer says to his servants, just let the weeds grow up among the grain until the harvest. And then Jesus explains The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father." And then secondly, we have the grape harvest of unbelievers in verses 17 to 20. Uh, You will know that in John's day, and even in some parts of our own world to this day, uh, wine was made by throwing grapes into big, large vats. And then the harvesters would trample uh, the grapes, sometimes to song and to dance, in fact. Uh, there, there are holes in the, in the bottoms of those vats and channels through which the grape juice flows and can be collected. And now it seems that it is men and women who are placed into the great winepress of God's wrath, verse 20. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia which was roughly the length of the land of Israel. In other words, it seems the picture we're supposed to get here is the whole country covered in blood to a depth of one and a half meters. It's a horrific image, but it's also a radical judgment that eliminates every bit of evil and hostility to God. But folk, in the midst of this horrific passage, there is the most important note of hope for us. And it's on this note that I'd like to end. Notice firstly three little words in verse 20. The words, outside the city. 
The winepress of God's wrath is located outside the city. And that little phrase, outside the city, would have been very familiar to John's readers because another important historical event was said to have taken place outside of the city. Can you remember what it was? All four gospel writers make mention of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified outside the city of Jerusalem. The writer to the Hebrews picks up this point in Hebrews 13, where he says, Jesus suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Hold that thought for a moment and have a look at the second note of hope, which is found in verse 10. In verse 10, we read about the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. How in the world is that hopeful? Well, once again, this is a picture that comes to us from the Old Testament about God's judgment on the nations. Uh, So, for example, in Jeremiah 25, God says to Jeremiah, Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Or again, Psalm 75, we read, In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. So this cup of fury that the nations and unbelievers and the wicked have to drink. But do you remember what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he died? Matthew 26. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. The cup that Jesus shrank from was the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength, undiluted. And Jesus, outside the city of Jerusalem, did drink the cup of God's wrath. He was cut off from the presence of God, which is what hell is. He was placed into the great winepress of God's wrath, and his blood was poured out, Blood enough to cover the entire land of Israel. Blood enough to cover the world. Blood enough to cover my sin and your son. On the cross of Calvary, the Lord Jesus experienced hell so that you and I need never, ever experience it. And the choice is ours this morning. Will you allow Jesus to take hell for you on the cross, or will you take it yourself? To quote J.I. Packer again, Scripture sees hell as self-chosen. Hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. All receive what they actually choose, either to be with God forever, worshipping him, or without God forever, worshipping themselves. Or as Pastor Tim Keller puts it, if the thing you most want is to worship God in the beauty of his holiness, then that is what you will get. If the thing you most want is to be your own master, then the holiness of God will become an agony and the presence of God a terror that you will flee forever. Let's pray together.